Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this ninth day of November, 2008. I'd like to encourage my listeners, as always, to look into the website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find all of our previous episodes of the podcast, as well as interviews, articles, and videos. And of course, you can always subscribe to our RSS feeds for free in order to stay up to date with all of the latest updates to the website. As a follow-up to last week's episode of the podcast, I'd like to remind all of my listeners that over the past week, we have uploaded quite a bit of information related to the November 1st, 2008 Osaka 9-11 Truth Conference that we attended. There are now articles, interviews, and videos related to that conference up on the website and on our YouTube account at youtube.com slash Corbett Report. So please take a look into that to find out more information about that 9-11 Truth Conference. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from the Corbett Report, 6th of November 2008. Details emerge on new WTC collapse videos. The Corbett Report talks to source connected to the footage. A source connected to the previously unreleased footage of the collapse of WTC1 and WTC7, which suddenly appeared on internet video sharing site VO.com last weekend, has revealed details about the footage to the Corbett Report. According to the source, the videos available on the internet come from a DVD that was compiled from raw footage taken in New York on September 11th. The video on the internet has not been edited or manipulated in any way from the footage on the DVD, although the replay of each collapse has been slowed down by 50%. The source indicated, however, that the raw footage had been edited before it was put on the DVD, thus explaining the sudden cut from a close-up of the North Tower to a long shot of the entire building with the collapse already underway. This source also dismisses internet speculation that the person who took the footage was connected in any way to the collapses themselves. A number of posters on internet discussion boards and forums have claimed that the WTC7 video is suspicious, as it zooms out just moments before the collapse, as if the person taking the footage knew what was about to happen. The source notes that the footage starts with a close-up of the windows breaking out on the north side of the building, which would have been a visual cue to anyone watching the building at that moment that something was taking place in the building. The video shows perhaps the clearest view yet of World Trade Center 7 as it collapses directly into its own footprint at freefall gravitational speed in the late afternoon on September 11, 2001. 
This collapse has long interested 9-11 researchers, as the building was not struck by a plane and only had two isolated office fires burning in it that afternoon before its sudden and complete collapse, an unprecedented event in the history of modern steel-framed skyscrapers. The video of the North Tower also shows an extremely detailed view of the bottom half of the building as the collapse reaches the lower levels, including a brief, clear glimpse of the spire of interior columns before they disappear into the pyroclastic dust cloud at the base of the building, a feature not found in ordinary office collapses and also seen in the wake of the WTC7 collapse. Both videos also show clear views of the blast squibs preceding the collapses, Another sign of controlled demolition. Our second story today comes from MSNBC.com, November 6th, 2008. Just three superbanks now dominate industry. Sudden consolidation raises questions about regulation, consumer impact. The financial crisis that has been sweeping the globe has reshaped nearly every corner of the economy, but no industry has been altered more radically than banking. Several of the nation's biggest banks have failed or been absorbed by healthier institutions, including three giant super banks with an unprecedented concentration of market power, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Wells Fargo. While that may be good news for emerging giants and the failing companies they helped rescue, The new oligopoly raises troubling questions about regulation and competition, analysts and consumer advocates say. Bank fees are going up, 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 and that's the danger to consumers as more of these banks consolidate, says Sally Greenberg, executive director of the National Consumer League. It's difficult for the average person to get a bank account that doesn't involve fees, and if you get into financial distress, you're cooked, and you'll be feed to death. Moreover, many analysts worry about how federal and state authorities, who were unable to prevent the current financial industry meltdown, will be able to monitor the new giant banks that combine a wide range of operations from investment banking to consumer lending. Large institutions are impossible to manage prudently, let alone regulate, says Amar Bide, a professor at the Columbia Business School. In fact, Existing federal banking laws say that no bank can have more than 10% of the domestic deposit market, a threshold recently surpassed by all three superbanks. Our final story today comes from independent.co.uk, 5th of November 2008. Government black boxes will collect every email. Home Office says all data from the web could be stored in giant government database. Internet black boxes will be used to collect every email and web visit in the UK under the government's plan for a giant Big Brother database, the Independent has learnt. Home Office officials have told senior figures from the Internet and Telecommunications Industries that the black box technology could automatically retain and store raw data from the web before transferring it to a giant central database controlled by the government. Plans to create a database holding information about every phone call, email, and internet visit made in the UK have provoked a huge public outcry. Richard Thomas, the Information Commissioner, described it as a step too far, and the government's own terrorism watchdog said that as a raw idea, it was awful. Nevertheless, 
Ministers have said they are committed to consulting on the new communications data bill early in the new year. News that the government is already preparing the ground by trying to allay the concerns of the internet industry is bound to raise suspicions about ministers' true intentions. Further details of the database emerged on Monday at a meeting of internet service providers in London where representatives from BT, AOL Europe, O2, and B-Sky-B were given a PowerPoint presentation of the issues and the technology surrounding the government's interception modernization program, the name given by the Home Office to the database proposal. It was clear the black box is the technology the government will use to hold all the data. But what isn't clear is what the Home Secretary, GCHQ, and the security services intend to do with all this information in the future, said a source close to the meeting. I'd like to take a moment out of the regular podcast to commend and congratulate my American listeners. Yes, last Tuesday, millions of people from sea to shining sea took part in that age-old institution of the world's foremost democracy, casting their ballot. Yes, millions of people across that great nation stepped into a voting booth somewhere on Tuesday and touched their finger to a computer screen highlighting their favorite candidate's name, or filled in a bubble next to their favorite candidate's name on an optically scanned ballot sheet before putting that piece of paper in the ballot box. And then, at the end of the evening, after millions upon millions of people had done that very same thing, the computers that added up the ballots told the American people that they had voted for Barack Hussein Obama, the 44th president of the United States of America. And it was good. Indeed, people in America will no longer have to worry about paying their gas bills or even their mortgages. Peggy Joseph took her daughter out of school early Wednesday for this. Her emotions ran high following Obama's speech. It was the most memorable time of my life. It was a touching moment because I never thought this day would ever happen. I won't have to worry about putting gas in my car. I won't have to worry about paying my mortgage. You know, if I, if I help him, he's going to help me. Okay, so such mindless hogwash is just the swill that a lot of Americans have unfortunately bought into, backed up with such airy rhetoric as, yes, we can, and change. And in fact, things are probably not going to change miraculously for the better just because a new person has gone into the White House. One thing that may be important to note for listeners of episode 61 of the Corbett Report podcast is that, yes, indeed, there was election fraud this time around, just as there always is. Probably the simplest demonstration of that comes from the Brad blog at bradblog.com, an online journal that has been documenting election fraud and election integrity issues related to touchscreen voting for many years and has long been a vocal denouncer of these machines. Well, from November 6, 2008, this story from the Brad blog, all Diebold touchscreen systems impounded by judge in PA County. Quote, 
All 185 of the completely unverifiable Diebold touchscreen voting machines used in Northumberland County, Pennsylvania's election were ordered impounded by a judge Tuesday night after complaints from both the Republican and Democratic parties. Officials from both parties had filed requested action following reports from voters that straight-party ticket votes were not showing voters the names of their selection for president on the summary screen near the end of the 100% faith-based touchscreen voting process. While one Diebold AccuVote touchscreen machine was impounded by an official in Colorado following reports of votes flipping on the screen from Democratic to Republican candidates in early voting, and even with hundreds of similar startling problems reported directly to the Obama campaign, as the Brad blog reported exclusively on Monday, no other action was taken on or before Election Day to remove these wholly unverifiable systems from use until Tuesday night's court-ordered quarantine of the Northumberland County machines. End quote. Combine that with articles like this one from TampaBay.com, election documents found on junction of I-4, I-275, and indeed numerous articles coming in from around the country, and yes, indeed, there was election fraud going on in this election. Nonetheless, Obama seems to have won the White House, and handily enough that there is, in fact, no dispute, and McCain has conceded the election. What is the ultimate effect of all of this? Well, of course, now the Democrats are fully on board. No, there's, of course, no election fraud. There's nothing wrong with touchscreen voting. It all works, and uh, there's no reason to file any more complaints about election integrity issues. Look for the Obama administration to do nothing at a federal level to ensure the election integrity of future elections. Or, should I say, selections. Well, the real implication here is that if Obama got in, it's because the powers that be wanted Obama to get in. Why is that? What is the value of an Obama administration for the power elite? Well, let's listen to this explanation of that answer, which came from the Alex Jones Show this week. They have been grooming Barack Obama for a long time to sell the progressives and the left in this country to go along with any evil committed by the New World Order. I am upset to watch people calling him the world president, the leader, crying, watching those crowds last night during his speech like they had seen Jesus return and touch down. Because I know his policies. Spy brigades, FEMA camps, wars, handing everything over to foreign international banks. It's all happening. It's in Reuters today. George Bush could have never gotten away with that because he had no political capital, because he's a bumbling, corrupt little fool who the system picked by design to do that for eight years. And people are so one-dimensional that they email me, they call me, and, and again, it's, it's, it's a minority of our listeners, maybe 15%. We've had polls on InfoWars. You know, who, who are you supporting? About 15% Barack Obama. So we know it's about 15%. I mean, don't be blinded, don't be suckers, don't be mindless. You're going to be hurt by this New World Order very bad. Remove Barack Obama from the equation. He's a puppet, a front man. He's a brand name they think they can sell their tyranny through. And when they're done with him in four to eight years, they will give you a Republican 
and then I will cease being a right-wing fascist, and I will become a commie again in the mindless left-right paradigm population. <clears throat> I've written some notes here this morning that I want to go over dealing with Barack Obama. I am sad because people are thinking that everything Bush did is about to be reversed, and if you study Barack Obama, they are going to kick it into high gear. They had a divided Congress before. Close margins. A Democratic Congress and a Republican president. But still, the war continued. The banker takeover continued. Everything continued. You're not going to see the phony drug war reversed in any way. He's not going to speak out against it. He supports it. You're not going to see them stop using spy satellites against the American people with the local police departments and warrantless wiretaps. You're not going to see any of that reversed. The Patriot Act, none of it. And see, like I told you, overnight, suddenly Democrats are going, hey, what's wrong with shutting down free speech? What's wrong with, uh, you know, maybe we don't need guns anymore. You know, George Bush is leaving. You know, all, a lot of what we've gained being reversed with this stunt, this corporate stunt, this, this hoax. We'll be right back. So if Obama is indeed the change that is going to get the American people back on board with government, which has been thoroughly discredited during the Bush administration's eight years in office to the point where Congress receives a 9% approval rating, what exactly is the agenda that Obama is meant to bring in? Well, we've already seen hints of it peppered throughout his speeches in the last few years, and especially on the campaign trail. And we already, to a certain extent, know what Obama wants to accomplish in his time in office. But before we even get into that, it's important to note that when I say Obama, or indeed when anyone else says Obama, and what Obama wants to accomplish, we have to understand this on more than a cartoonish, childlike level. It is not one man going into the White House who is going to single-handedly change the government and implement all of these ideas. Of course we understand that on an intellectual level, but on some base psychological level, we really are trained to follow the alpha male leader of our society and believe that he is the one making these decisions and implementing these changes. Did Bush run anything in his time in office? No, he was a puppet, a spokesman. He was the front man for a group. He was indeed a burnt-out cokehead who couldn't string a sentence together unless it was teleprompted for him. And in the exact same way that Bush ran nothing and was a puppet, Obama will run nothing and is a puppet. So when I or anyone else says Obama will do this or Obama will do that, what we are really talking about is a team of advisors and people behind the scenes who are working together in unison to craft an agenda that they will be able to ramrod through a House and Senate that is no longer divided with the executive. We now have both the legislative and executive branches dominated by the Democrats, and anything that the team of advisors behind the scenes want to accomplish, they will be able to do so easily. This is a very dangerous situation. Now let's get into what exactly does this Obama administration want to accomplish. And for the links to the articles backing up everything I'm about to say, again, as always please visit CorbettReport.com, click on the Episodes tab, click on today's episode, and underneath you'll find a documentation link. 
Click on that link and you will find a list of all of the documents cited in this episode sorted by time index. So what does the team of advisors behind Obama want to accomplish? Well, we know they want to bring in a carbon tax. We know they want to institute a civilian national security force to rival the United States military in size, scope, and funding. We know that Obama supports FISA warrantless wiretapping. We know that Obama will not pull troops out of Iraq. We know that Obama is dedicated to bombing Pakistan unilaterally. And we know that Obama was 100% behind the banker bailout bill, the stealing of hundreds of billions and eventually trillions of dollars from the Treasury, that is, from the American people, to give to the banks in the hopes that they will again lend that money back to the people, although all indications so far are that that's not happening, and the banks are holding on to the money that they've received so far and doling out billions upon billions in bonuses to their CEOs. Let me restate what the banker bailout bill has so far accomplished, and that is to take money from American people to give to the banks in the hopes that the banks will lend it back to the people at interest. They are trying to take the American taxpayers' dollars and lend it back to them at interest. The insanity and inane nature of that bill is immediately apparent to everyone, and that's why the bill was rejected by such a vast majority of the public, and yet was still rammed through Congress and the Senate, and supported by Barack Obama. What's going on here? Why would Obama support such a bill? Is it really because he wants to spread the wealth around, as some people and even himself have claimed? Of course not. That's a self-evident lie since none of this money is actually going to the people. This is not socialism. This is fascism. This is the very definition of fascism. That is taking money from the people and taking the resources of the state and pumping it into the corporations, i.e. the banks, like the three super banks that have emerged recently, as reported on in today's Real News. Well, a better understanding of this situation comes from the fact that Obama's top foreign policy advisor is one Zbigniew Brzezinski. Perhaps Zbigniew Brzezinski is a new name for some of my listeners, while other of my listeners have no doubt heard of him before. But just to bring us all up to speed, let's answer the question, who is Zbigniew Brzezinski? I'd like to answer that question by reading from The True Story of the Bilderberg Group by Daniel Estulin. I read now from the first edition of the book, published in 2007 by Trinday. On page 141 and 142, it says, quote, When David Rockefeller read Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era, a book published in 1970 by Professor Zbigniew Brzezinski of Columbia University, he already shared the view that, quote, people, governments, and economies of all nations must serve the needs of multinational banks and corporations, with Marxist CFR founder Edward Mandel House. In fact, Brzezinski was so bold as to dismiss the U.S. Constitution, the very document that limits government abuse of power, as inadequate. Instead, Brzezinski claimed that the old framework of international politics, with their spheres of influence, the fiction of sovereignty, is clearly no longer compatible with reality. 
and proposed the approaching 200th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence could justify the call for the National Constitutional Convention to re-examine the nation's formal institutional framework and could serve as a suitable target date culminating a national dialogue on the relevance of existing arrangements. That same year, Brzezinski also contributed to Foreign Affairs, the CFR publication, asserting that a new and broader approach was needed. He suggested the creation of a community of the developed nations which can effectively address itself to the larger concerns confronting mankind. A council representing the United States, Western Europe, and Japan, with regular meetings of the heads of government, as well as some small standing machinery, would be a good start. These words must have been the call to arms that set David Rockefeller in action, for in the spring of 1972, he broached the idea of a trilateral commission at the annual Bilderberger meeting at Nock, Belgium. According to George C. Franklin, former trilateral commission coordinator, the group responded with great enthusiasm for Rockefeller's proposal of an international alliance that would create strategies and policies to consolidate the four pillars of power, political, monetary, intellectual, and ecclesiastical, under a central world government. The next eight speakers said that this was a marvelous idea. By all means, somebody get it launched. End quote. Okay, so this Professor Brzezinski, who's one of Obama's top foreign policy advisors, happened to write a book in 1970 that inspired David Rockefeller to set up the Trilateral Commission based on a shared worldview that, of course, all the resources of the planet should go towards dismantling America's sovereignty and handing it over to multinational corporations and bankers. Okay, well, so what of it? Well, let's see what they managed to accomplish with that Trilateral Commission just a few years after its founding. Quoting from page 158 of the true story of the Bilderberg Group, referring to then-Governor Jimmy Carter in 1973, the following passage. Quote, that year, Carter and Askew were invited to David Rockefeller's Terrytown, New York estate. Also present was Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was helping Rockefeller screen prospects for the Trilateral Commission. Carter's southern gentility charmed both men, but what impressed them more was that Carter had already opened up trade offices for the state of Georgia in Brussels and Tokyo. This seemed to fit perfectly with the aspirations of the Trilateral Commission. However, what truly impressed them wasn't Carter's independence. Rather, what endeared Carter to the establishment crowd was his ruthlessness and ambition. As Gary Allen writes in his controversial 1970 book, Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter, Carter's overwhelming ambition and corruptibility made him vulnerable. It included conniving with his own personal banker, Bert Lance, to funnel bank depositors' money into Carter's peanut business and into the bank accounts of Lance Associates and family members to finance Carter's campaign while waiting for federal matching funds. The illegalities involved were enough to send the whole gang to jail, and the key to exposure was in the hands of David Rockefeller and his fellow banking insiders. End quote. Continuing from page 159, quote, One may actually feel inclined to believe that Jimmy Carter truly was an outsider, but was he really? Let's see. Twelve individuals belonging to the Council on Foreign Relations Trilateral Commission Combines 
according to a June 1976 article in the Los Angeles Times, helped Carter prepare his first major speech on foreign policy. Zbigniew Brzezinski, Richard Cooper, Richard Gardner, Henry Owen, Edwin O. Reischauer, Avril Harriman, Anthony Lake, Robert Bowie, Milton Katz, Abram Chase, George Ball, and Cyrus Vance. With a writing team like this, how could Carter come up with a bad political speech? But each of these men was an insider heavyweight with an agenda. Most belonged to the Bilderberg Group, all were members of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission. In the speech they created for Carter, they created what the American people craved to hear from a prospective leader. Carter played the role of an outsider to perfection, and immediately upon entering the White House, he filled many of the administrative positions with CFR and trilateralist insiders. An astounding 40% of the American trilateral members joined the Carter administration. In all, 291 members of either the CFR or Trilateral Commission, or both, formed part of the Carter presidency. Among them, of course, both President Carter and Vice President Mondale. End quote. Well, we all know that Brzezinski went on to become, surprise, surprise, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor. So do we see any parallels developing between the Brzezinski-Rockefeller Trilateral Commission CFR puppet Jimmy Carter and the Brzezinski-backed Barack Obama? Well, let's turn to an Infowars.net article for information on that from Friday, November 7th, 2008. Obama's Council on Foreign Relations crew, out with the old regime, in with the old regime. Quote, Meet some of President-elect Obama's leading foreign and domestic policy advisors and likely administration members, every one of them a prominent member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Will these people bring about change, or will they continue to hold up the same entrenched system forged by the corporate elite for decades? End quote. The article then goes on to give information about the following Obama advisors and their connections to groups such as the Council on Foreign Relations, the Brookings Institution, the Project for a New American Century, and yes, the Trilateral Commission. These advisors include Susan E. Rice, Anthony Lake, Richard Clark, Ivo Dalder, Dennis Ross, Lawrence Korb, Bruce Riddle, Stephen Flynn, Madeleine Albright, and, of course, Zbigniew Brzezinski. The article notes the following about Mr. Brzezinski. Quote, CFR, Trilateral Commission, Brzezinski is widely seen as the man who created Al-Qaeda and was involved in the Carter administration plan to give arms, funding, and training to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. End quote. Let's focus a little bit on the information provided about Zbigniew Brzezinski in that article. Indeed, it says that, as National Security Advisor to Jimmy Carter, Zbigniew Brzezinski was essential in funding and training the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. So what is the basis for that claim? U.S. National Security Advisor Brzezinski flew to Pakistan to set about rallying resistance. He wanted to arm the Mujahideen without revealing America's role. On the Afghan border near the Khyber Pass, he urged the soldiers of God to redouble their efforts. 
we know of their deep belief in God and we are confident that their struggle will succeed. That land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. The purpose of coordinating with the Pakistanis will be to make the Soviets bleed for as much as long as is possible. Now, more information about Zbigniew Brzezinski and his connection to the founding and funding of Al-Qaeda through Operation Cyclone can be found in his own admission, a rather famous admission from Le Nouvel Observateur, a French publication back in the 1990s. And again, look through the documentation list for today's episode at CorbettReport.com to find a link to a translation of that article. But the story is a interesting one, and one that will be covered in greater detail in our forthcoming documentary, Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist. But before we leave the subject of Brzezinski and Afghanistan, it's important to note a very interesting connection between Brzezinski and Afghanistan that came from his 1997 publication, The Grand Chessboard. In this book, Brzezinski made some startling prophecies about the first war of the 21st century, and exactly where and why it will be taking place. Perhaps Brzezinski was psychic. But to get more information about that, I'd like to turn now to a clip from a presentation made by Michael Rupert shortly after 9-11, detailing Brzezinski's place in the 9-11 picture, and how it relates to what he wrote in his 1997 book, The Grand Chessboard. Let's listen to Michael Rupert, who listeners might remember from episode 19 of the Corbett Report podcast, in his 9-11 presentation in late 2001. Who's that? Zbigniew Brzezinski. Zbigniew Brzezinski was counselor for strategic and, uh, and international studies, professor of American foreign policy of Johns Hopkins, national security advisor to President Jimmy Carter, trustee and founder of the Trilateral Commission, member of the Council on Foreign Relations, international advisor to several major cor corporations, associate of Henry Kissinger, also worked for Ronald Reagan in intelligence capacities co-chairman of the Bush National Security Advisory Task Force in 1988. What a guy. CB. Now, if you want to get really, 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 really angry, go buy this book. It's called The Grand Chessboard. American Primacy and Its Geostrategic Objectives. Written by Zbigniew Brzezinski in 1997. I'm going to read you some quotes from that book. Page XII, it's the very first words in the book. The last decades of the 20th century has witnessed a tectonic shift in world affairs. For the first time ever, a non-Eurasian power has emerged not only as a key arbiter of Eurasian power relations, but also as the world's paramount power, 
The defeat and collapse of the Soviet Union was the final step in the rapid ascendance of a Western Hemisphere power, the United States, as the sole and indeed the first truly global superpower. Page XII, it's in the preface. But in the meantime, he says, it is imperative that no Eurasian challenger, Eurasia is everything in between roughly east of Germany all the way to the Pacific Ocean, south through the Indian subcontinent, includes the Middle East. It's imperative that no Eurasian challenger, by that he means Russia or China, emerges capable of dominating Eurasia and thus of also challenging America. The formulation of a comprehensive and integrated Eurasian geostrategy is therefore the purpose of this book, Geostrategy, Eurasia. The attitude of the American public toward the external projection of American power has been much more ambivalent. The public supported America's engagement in World War II largely because of the shock effect of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Gets worse. For America, the chief geopolitical prize is Eurasia. Now a non-Eurasian power, that's us, is preeminent in Eurasia and America's global primacy, isn't that arrogant? America's global primacy is directly dependent on how long and how effectively its preponderance on the Eurasian continent is sustained. What he's saying is, is that if the U.S. wants to stay top dog, we have to control Eurasia. But it helps if you see this on the map. Okay. Russia. Kazakhstan. Tajikistan. Tajikistan. Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and China. Now the proposed oil route is from here to here, 1,500 miles. China can't build it because it's 5,000 miles and they don't have the technology to build it. We do, thanks to a company named Halliburton. Halliburton, which was uh, chaired with the CEO, was Dick Cheney. Right? Okay. They're, they're, they're probably going to build the pipeline. Okay. So now that you see this relationship, what he's saying is you build a block starting with Islamic fundamentalism, which we supported and created, to keep Russia from moving south to reassert control, but then you build up these countries so that they're so powerful and with a weakened Russia, Russia can't make a move to control and all the oil reserves are right in here okay and he we have effectively made China uh, dependent upon our technology because they need the oil desperately now it was Uzbekistan nationally the most vital and the most populous of the Central Asian states represents the major obstacle to any renewed Russian control over the region. Its dependence is critical to the survival of other Central Asian states and is the least vulnerable to Russian pressures. Where was the first place that President Bush announced we were sending troops after the attacks on September 11th? We were already there. We've been training Uzbeki troops for more than five years. Referring to an area he calls the Eurasian Balkans in a 1997 map in which he circled the exact location now remember, this is a book written four years ago. And I'm going to show you a map where Zbigniew Brzezinski said the next world conflict was going to take place. 
Afghanistan, Iran, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan. This is where he said four years ago, the United States, in order to sustain its precarious, that's my words, economy would have to control that to maintain its role as the global superpower and to become the world's only superpower. The rule, in effect, the, the ruling nation of the world. That's his map from four years ago. Referring to an area he calls the Eurasian Balkans and a 97 map in which he circled the exact location of the current conflict, describing it as the central region of pending conflict for world dominance, Brzezinski writes, moreover, that they, the Central Asian republics, are of importance from the standpoint of security and historical ambitions to at least three of their most immediate and more powerful neighbors, namely Russia, Turkey, and Iran, with China also signaling an increasing geopolitical interest in the region. And he really lets his hair down. More important as a potential economic prize, an enormous concentration of natural gas and oil reserves is located in the region in addition to important minerals including gold. Didn't know about the gold, did you? The world's energy consumption is bound to vastly increase over the next two or three decades. Estimates by the U.S. Department of Energy anticipate that world demand will rise by more than 50% between 1993 and 2015, with the most significant increase in consumption occurring in the Far East, China. The momentum of Asia's economic development is already generating massive pressures for the exploration and exploitation of new sources of energy in the Central Asian region, and the Caspian Sea Basin are known to contain reserves of natural gas and oil that dwarf those of Kuwait, the Gulf of Mexico, and the North Sea. Once pipelines to the area have been developed, Turkmenistan's truly vast natural gas reserves augur a prosperous future. He's talking about the pipelines. Without sustained and directed American involvement before long, the forces of global disorder... Global disorder? You mean democracy? <laughs> Global disorder could come to dominate the world scene, and the possibility of such a fragmentation is inherent in the geopolitical tensions not only of today's Eurasia, but of the world more generally. The most immediate task is to make certain that no state or combination of states gains the capacity to, to expel the United States from Eurasia, or even, to or even to diminish significantly its decisive arbitration role. In the long run, Global politics are bound to become increasingly uncongenial to the concentration of hege hegemonic power in the hands of a single state. Hence, America is not only the first as well as the only truly global superpower, but is also likely to be the very last. And what does he say that's going to happen? He says that the United States will fold into a one world government in which all nations will cease to exist run by corporations. I'm paraphrasing it. Now, hold your breath. Very last pages in the book. Moreover, as America becomes an increasingly multicultural society, it may find it more difficult to fa fashion a consensus on foreign policy issues except in the circumstance of a truly massive and widely perceived direct external threat. 
Read it again, she said. Maybe I should read this with a German accent. Wait a minute. Moreover, as America becomes an increasingly multicultural society, it may find it more difficult to fashion a consensus on foreign policy issues, except in the circumstance of a truly massive and widely perceived direct external threat. Yes, you heard correctly. In 1997, Zbigniew Brzezinski correctly predicted that Afghanistan would become a central theater for the staging of U.S. aggression in the first part of the 21st century. And yes, he even wrote that without a catalyzing event like a Pearl Harbor, American public opinion can't be manipulated into supporting large-scale U.S. imperialist ambitions. Yes, that was a full three years before Dick Cheney and the PNAC gang were to write Rebuilding America's Defenses, in which they called for a new Pearl Harbor to catalyze the American public to get them behind the idea of projecting U.S. military power around the globe for another century. But Brzezinski is certainly not to be confused with a lowly PNAC neocon, the now completely discredited right wing of the U.S. imperialist agenda, no, he's associated with the Rockefeller, Soros, Kissinger, Bilderberg Trilateral Commission wing, which is really never out of style, perhaps only ever out of the White House. But it looks like they're getting back into the White House. And now with a new golden boy to parade around in front of the masses as if he's actually doing anything other than repeating what his puppeteers want him to say, the grand chessboard will be reset and... Brzezinski will once again have free reign to start manipulating the world stage like he was under Carter. First, perhaps my listeners think that simply because Brzezinski backs Obama and has been touted as his top foreign policy advisor, that I'm reading too much into his influence over Obama. I assure you that's not the case, and in fact, there are grounds for assuming there's a much deeper connection between Brzezinski and Obama, one that goes back 25 years. To help flesh out that case, I'd like to turn back to a researcher that long-term listeners of the Corbett Report will know well, Webster Tarpley. Webster Tarpley has been warning about Obama getting into office for well over a year now, and has in fact written two books on the subject, Obama, the Postmodern Coup, and Barack H. Obama, the Unauthorized Biography. Let's listen to an excerpt of an interview that he did with a Dutch journalist earlier this year, before Obama had won the primaries and accepted the Democratic presidential nomination, in which he talked about the deeper basis on which Brzezinski and Obama are connected. Now, if you go back to 1981, 1982, you can do this with the help of Samuel Huntington's book on American politics, which I, I quote in my own book, uh, uh, which is called Obama, the Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate. Uh, if you look in here, you will see that they were already sort of summing up their experiences under Carter, and they were looking ahead. And in Huntington, Huntington is, is explicitly looking ahead to 2010 and 2030. In other words, he believes that there's going to be a crisis of ungovernability, what he calls a creedal passion period, a political upsurge, an economic breakdown perhaps, uh, all of this starting around 2010, which is now where we are. We have reached that point. My guess is that uh, Obama was recruited by Brzezinski at Columbia, 1981, 82, 83. You cannot know this uh, positively because Obama 
in his uh, his memoirs, he's got this thing called Dreams from My Father. He tells you everything about himself. He tells you about marijuana, cocaine, almost heroin, but not quite. Tells you all this stuff. But when it comes to Columbia University, he tells you nothing. And it's, it's actually puzzling because why would he tell you about marijuana and cocaine, which are bad, and then not tell you about his career at this wonderful Ivy League prestigious elite Columbia University? He doesn't say anything about it. Uh, the, sim the same thing is, uh, is what the New York Times found. The New York Times tried to do the life of Obama. They focused on his years in New York City because they're from New York, and they couldn't find anything. They couldn't find out what courses he took, who his friends were, anything that he did. He doesn't seem to be in the yearbook. Uh, it's all very strange. Chicago Tribune, which is very, very favorable to Obama, did the same thing. Could not find anything about those years at Columbia. Now, there are two possibilities. One is that he's hiding homosexual activity. Uh, Obama, I think, is pretty well established to be a bisexual. Uh, he's accused by Larry Sinclair of homosexual encounters with crack cocaine. We can talk about that in a minute. But I think the deeper level is what he's covering up in terms of uh, his contacts with Brzezinski. Obama was a politics major with a specialty in international relations and a thesis topic that was Soviet nuclear disarmament. Now, that has Brzezinski written all over it. At, in those years, Brzezinski was on the campus at Columbia. He was the head of the Institute of Communist Affairs, an anti-Soviet think tank. Uh, and uh, it seems to me extremely likely uh, that he was recruited by Brzezinski at that point, meaning that he has been, been indoctrinated for 25 years. If this is not true, I would invite Obama to tell us the full story of his years at Columbia. And he has said zero. No friends, no professors, no transcript, no nothing. It is the biggest uh, uh, obsessive secrecy that we've seen. Um, it's comparable to, you know, Bush is trying to hide his drunk driving record. In this case, Obama won't let you know what he did at Columbia. He should be saying, oh, I'm proud. I was an A student. Yeah, the same I wrote this wonderful, uh, wonderful yeah. thing. It's the highlight of his early career was to go to Columbia. So he doesn't do that. So what this means then is 25 years of indoctrination and grooming. With Carter, they only had five or six years at most, say from... I don't know, 1970, 71, 72, until 1976 when he won the presidency. In the case of Obama, I think you're looking at a 25-year process where they were guiding his career. Okay, so we know that Brzezinski and Obama potentially have gone back decades in their relationship, and now Brzezinski is a top foreign policy advisor for Obama and set to be puppeteering things in the National Security Department of an Obama administration. So what exactly is Brzezinski's long-term ambitions? Well, let's turn to a couple of sources for that. Firstly, an article by Patrick Briley, which can be found on revolutionradio.org from September 16th, 2008, entitled Brzezinski, Obama's Globalist Rasputin. This article reads in part, quote, Zbigniew Brzezinski is Barack Obama's foreign policy advisor. Brzezinski was the national security advisor for President Carter from 1977 to 1981. In 1988, he endorsed H.W. Bush for president and was co-chair of the H.W. Bush National Security Advisor Task Force. From 1987 to 1989, he also served on the H.W. Bush's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board. Clinton Secretary of State Madeleine Albright was a student of Brzezinski. G.W. Bush Secretary of State Condi Rice 
also a former national security advisor, who studied under Albright's father, shares many of the same world government views with Brzezinski and Albright. Zbigniew Brzezinski is an advocate of socialist world government, a goal he has promoted as a member of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and as a speaker at former Soviet Premier and Communist Mikhail Gorbachev's First World Forum. Brzezinski is an architect of creating regions of global governance from independent nations to achieve world government. At the World Forum, Brzezinski described the global regions that are now being put into place under Condi Rice. Israel and the Palestinians, now MEFTA, Middle East Free Trade Association, Iran as part of a Central Asian region, and China as part of a Far Eastern region. As a member of CSIS, Brzezinski has guided their efforts to publish the North American Integration Monitor that calls for the loss of U.S. sovereignty to a North American Union as one of the regional global government blocs. The proposals for global taxes by Obama have come with the recommendation of Zbigniew Brzezinski to pay for globalization and world government. Obama has proposed a global poverty tax in a U.S. Senate bill. The Climate Change Control Bill, strongly supported by Obama, calls for an international governing regime to monitor and regulate carbon dioxide and carbon footprints from discovery to production to consumption at a cost of $50 trillion globally and at a cost of $8 trillion for U.S. taxpayers, all to be paid for by a global tax whose monies will be used to establish a world government body. Obama, Brzezinski, and Al Gore have worked closely with communist-backed environmental fronts led by Gorbachev, proponent of Earth Charter, author of Manifesto for Earth, to promote the falsehood of significant global climate change due to man-made sources of greenhouse gases, to scare the world and the U.S. into paying such a global tax to save the planet. According to Dr. Dennis Cuddy, Brzezinski, as Trilateral Commission Director, advocated in a 1973 memo establishing means for societal control over the world population by deliberate economic and political destabilization so that later the debt leash could be used to strangle a rebellious nation into submission to global governance. End quote. Now, all of that is scary enough, but perhaps the bleakest picture is painted by Webster Tarpley, who, in August of 2008, connected Brzezinski to the Georgian incursion into Russian-backed South Ossetian territories on 888. In an article that he wrote on August 10th entitled, Brzezinski's Georgia Puppet Attacks Russia, World War III in Sight, Tarpley writes, quote, Clearly playing the role of the aggressor, the NATO puppet regime of Mikhail Saakashvili has carried out a midnight sneak attack against Russian peacekeepers in the province of South Ossetia. Those peacekeepers have been there for 15 years under an agreement with Georgia. Saakashvili is a protege and creature of Zbigniew Brzezinski, the foreign policy boss of the Barack Obama presidential campaign. As is explained in my book Obama, the Postmodern Coup, the Making of Manchurian Candidate, Saakashvili was brought to power in 2003-2004 by a people power coup or CIA color revolution directed by the Brzezinski clan and financed by George Soros, one of Obama's key financial backers. In a very real sense, it is the Obama campaign which has attacked Russia in South Ossetia. Most interesting is the response of Brzezinski's other puppet, Obama. 
The Messiah first intoned that it was necessary to show restraint and stop the armed conflict. He talked then to NSC Director Hadley, Saakashvili, Rice, and unspecified foreign policy advisors, undoubtedly the Brzezinski's Zbig and Mark. Notice Obama's failure to talk with a single Russian leader. He failed to bring anybody together this time. Then Obama switched to a full warmonger line, identical to that of Bush. Obama now lied that Russia had invaded Georgian sovereignty and encroached on Russian sovereignty. Obama's spokesman, Ben Rhodes, added that Russia was responsible for the conflict. This goes to show that Obama is a ticket to World War III on the Brzezinski plan, the crackpot designed to break up Russia and China, securing another century for the Anglo-American world empire. Because Brzezinski's strategic insanity unfolds on a scale more vast than that of the neocons, Obama is indeed a far bigger warmonger than Bush. In his later statement, Mr. Obama said, What is clear is that Russia has invaded Georgia's sovereign, has encroached on Georgia's sovereignty, and it is very important for us to resolve this issue as quickly as possible, the New York Times reported. Obama is morally insane, since Georgia is the aggressor and Russia is acting in self-defense. Russian peacekeepers have been stationed in South Ossetia for about 15 years under a Russian-Georgian bilateral agreement, which the provocateur Saakashvili has now chosen to violate. The pseudo-democratic Saakashvili has declared martial law and is proceeding to liquidate his internal opposition, a favorite Saakashvili trick. In November 2007, when opposition to the NATO free market kleptocrats was getting out of hand after a large demonstration, Saakashvili also declared martial law, suppressing the media and rounding up his opponents. This is the man Obama is supporting. End quote. Now, of course, my listeners may have noticed a difference in interpretation over Brzezinski's long-term ambitions, with Tarpley advocating the idea that Brzezinski's plan is simply for the domination of the Anglo-American empire for another century, whereas the Briley article advocates the idea that Brzezinski's long-term plan is to establish a socialist world government. Perhaps the two are not entirely unrelated or at odds with each other, as the establishment of the Anglo-American one-world government is in many senses indistinguishable from that socialist world government, only that the socialism of the socialist world government would in fact be finance oligarchical capitalism, which is to say not capitalism at all. But that is perfectly keeping in line with Brzezinski's palling around with Soros and Rockefeller and other Wall Street interests. Now, of course, this is all quite complicated, and there are many facets to Brzezinski's ultimate plans, but let's turn back to Webster Tarpley and that interview that we were listening to earlier to try to get a better grasp of what Brzezinski's plan is and how it's likely to unfold in the Obama administration. Brzezinski is known for one thing. He hates Russia. He is a passionate, fanatical hater of Russia. The same goes for his son, Mark. And he's got another son, Ian Brzezinski, who is currently uh, a top official in the Pentagon. And Ian Brzezinski runs John McCain's foreign policy and writes a lot of McCain's foreign policy material. So, interestingly enough, if you don't want a Brzezinski dynasty, you better support Mrs. Clinton. She's the only way you escape having Brzezinski in the background running the show through one or more of his two sons. But Brzezinski's hatred of Russia is, is now this. Brzezinski looks at the neocons, and he says to the neocons, you bunglers. Brzezinski says that, uh, that Brzezinski himself 
and, and Samuel Huntington, his right-hand man, we gave you the clash of civilizations as an idea. And he says, what you should have done is to play these different countries one against the other. Brzezinski says the essence of imperialism is you don't attack Iraq, you play Iran against Iraq. You don't attack Venezuela, you play Colombia against Venezuela. You don't attack Somalia, you play Ethiopia against Somalia. And ultimately, you don't attack Russia, he says, you play China against Russia, or some variation of that. So the, the strategy that Brzezinski has is to say, first of all, there should be no attack on Iran. There should rather be an effort uh, to turn Iran against the Russians. And this is realistic based on the fact that there's a large degree of anti-Iranian resentment in the uh, anti-Russian resentment in the Iranian population. He would also say you could probably turn Syria against Russia at the same time. But now the heart of Brzezinski's strategy is this. Brzezinski looks at China and he says China can be manipulated through their raw material and oil dependency on Africa, and in particular Sudan. We know that Sudan is now supplying seven, eight percent maybe of China's uh, oil needs, petroleum in general. Brzezinski would say, what you've got to do first of all is kick the Chinese out of Africa. That is why Bush went to Africa. That is why the U.S. is creating a new AFRICOM, U.S. African command, probably in Ethiopia. That is why you have Al-Qaeda in Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco to help this destabilization. You've got the campaign against Mugabe. You've got a, a quasi-civil war in Kenya. You've got destabilization in Chad. Most of all, you've got this attempted coup. Now, just in the last couple of days, there was an attempted bloody coup in Khartoum, Sudan, undoubtedly piloted by these Brzezinski forces. So the first step of this is to use Obama as the facelift of U.S. imperialism, a new face for U.S. imperialism, in Africa specifically, to kick out the Chinese. At the same time, you've got a campaign to uh, destroy Pakistan as a, uh, as, a, as a state, as a nation, and that is being done through bombing now, demanded by Obama, and now going on, a bombing of so-called so Al-Qaeda bases in northern Pakistan. It's a very interesting story. Originally, back in the middle of last year, Obama said he wanted to bomb Pakistan without consulting the Pakistani government. Bush said no, McCain said no, Clinton said no. Obama is the most aggressive warmonger of the entire democratic field, and guess what? Even though Bush said no last year, the U.S. has now been bombing Pakistan without consulting Musharraf or the Pakistani government in January, February, March, and I believe now into April and May of this year. So he's getting what he wants. The goal here, of course, is not al-Qaeda. This is a fairy tale, but it is to destroy Pakistan. And why? Because Pakistan is a traditional ally of China, an important economic partner of China. When Carter uh, came in, he came in as the candidate of the Trilateral Commission of David Rockefeller, Zbigniew Brzezinski, and Paul Volcker. He turned American foreign policy over to Zbigniew Brzezinski, who then did things like start the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Brzezinski systematically provoked it and boasts in his memoirs of having provoked it. Brzezinski also started the Iraq-Iran War uh, with uh, probably a million and a half dead. So Brzezinski's up there at about three, four, five million dead, just based on what he did in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the Carter administration. The other side of it, equally destructive in 
some ways. Paul Volcker, the trilateral member who was placed by Carter at the Federal Reserve, raised the interest rates to 22% prime rate, which meant 25 or 30% for many people. That systematically destroyed the industrial uh, infrastructure and fabric of the United States. The steel mills, the chemical plants, uh, and every other kind of industry shut down so that what we've got now is this post-industrial uh, rubble field in most parts of the United States that goes back precisely to the last trilateral administration. The trick, though, was that Carter had some idea of Christianity in his head, and Carter would sometimes say, well, the austerity these bankers want from me is too much. Brzezinski argues that the American uh, standard of living is still much too high. I would argue that the American standard of living has been reduced now by about uh, two-thirds since uh, about, uh, say, the Kennedy assassination. We've lost two-thirds of the standard of living. Brzezinski says, no, that's still too much. They're opulent, he says. They're hedonistic. They have uh, monstrous consumption. And uh, Brzezinski says this is a problem in the world because people are, are envious and, and uh, resentful of this. So we're going to lower it even further. Now, the obvious courses are, first of all, a global warming tax, a carbon tax that will further cut into the standard of living, then probably something like a third world solidarity tax. So with Obama, they're going to say, we are going to pitch you now into savage austerity, killer austerity, in the name of the polar bears, the ice cap, and the third world. Now, the trick, of course, is that none of this money will go for the polar bears, the ice cap, and the third world. It will go into the pockets of David Rockefeller, George Soros, and the other Wall Street thugs who are running Obama, because that is what Obama is today. You can look at the cast of characters. It's pretty much the same as Carter. He's got Zbigniew Brzezinski and Mark Brzezinski. That is to say, Zbigniew's son now is on the scene. Zbigniew Brzezinski is the guru of the entire campaign, although efforts are being made to conceal this fact. Brzezinski has put forward the entire profile, the austerity, the globalization, uh, and this question of the final showdown uh, with Moscow. If the information provided in today's podcast has done anything, I hope it is to get my listeners questioning the Messiah, the one, the chosen one, Barack Obama. Of course we know that he is not going to run anything. The question is, who is going to run something? Whether or not Brzezinski will be the ultimate puppet master for Obama, or whether Brzezinski himself is just a puppet for greater interests who are even further behind the scenes, I guess will come out in the fullness of time. But at this point, we as independent researchers need to be peeking behind the curtains and trying to find out what is behind the facade of Barack Obama. Some positive steps that could be taken to do this are to follow in the footsteps of We Are Change, who has been confronting Zbigniew Brzezinski, and evidence of their ample work in doing so can be found easily enough online. Another thing that we must do is inform ourselves about the other people behind Obama, and an obvious place to start would be the new White House Chief of Staff for the President-elect, Rahm Emanuel, about whom much has already been written, but I'm sure there is a lot more to be written about this character. And the Infowars.net article might be another place to start researching, with the various names cited in there, with their CFR, PNAC, Bilderberg, trilateral connections. And another important thing to keep in mind is that as a puppet, of course, Barack Obama as an individual is expendable. 
And should the unthinkable happen and yet another presidential assassination were to take place, like some of the insane plots that have been puppeteered by the FBI already, in the run-up to this election, let alone the run-up to the inauguration, if the assassination were ever to take place, the presidential line of succession would leave Biden in charge. One would be very well advised to take a look at Biden and his colorful history promoting the New World Order. I have a very disturbing feeling that indeed the Barack Obama administration will bring the change that the Obamazoids have been bleeding about so much recently, but I'm not sure this change is going to be the one we're looking for. U.S. imperialism has merely been given a facelift, and I know that my listeners understand this, but your friends, family, co-workers, and others probably don't. It's time to inform others that Barack Obama is not Jesus, he is not the Messiah, he is not going to save you, he's not going to pay your gas or your mortgage bills. It's time to take a look at the people behind Barack H. Obama. Reach out, touch faith. That's it for this week. Thank you for joining me, and join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. Although you have argued that deceptions to the American people may be necessary in order to deal with these enemies, how are we to know how many other terrorist incidents have, have been uh, state-sponsored false flag incidents, including the largest of one, the attacks of 9-11? How do we know, how do the American people know that 9-11 was a stage, was engineered by you, David Rockefeller, the Trilateral Commission, the CFR, and Bilderberg Group, sir? That's, how do you know it was a stage? Okay. It's a question. Answer my question. You sponsored Al-Qaeda, sir. You are a criminal. You sponsored Al-Qaeda. In 1979, you gave them money. That's true. You're a CFR scum. You are CFR New World Daughter scum. You and David Rockefeller will never have a New World Daughter. National sovereignty will prevail. Answer my question. Answer my question. You're, you are scum, sir. Answer, answer my question. Answer my question.